My name is Richard Eugene Michael Patrick Aloysius R. I'm German by birth. <laughs> no, seriously, I have the Irish curse. Um, I've always been I've always been told when you're speaking at one of these things to say what your life used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. So that's where we're going to go today. Uh, I was born in uh, New Jersey of a normal uh, family. Neither mother or father were drinkers. Um, I had an older brother. I had a twin brother. Um, I'm Richard Eugene Michael. He was Michael Eugene Richard. Um, I, I really had clever parents. And uh, in fact, my mom was so clever, she couldn't tell us apart when we left the hospital. So she brought us right back. And uh, she said, when those little bracelets come off, you know, if they stick on the baby, I won't know who's who. And so um, one of us was circumcised and one wasn't. Um, I told her that was what caused all the problems later in life. Every time anybody wanted to punish me, I was told, pull your pants down. Um, but I thought that was just kind of regular, you know. I, um, I was a good student uh, in, in school uh, by parental pressure. Um, I didn't feel I belonged like, like most of us, you know. I, I was only interested in the things I was interested in, and if I wasn't interested in it, I was probably going to flunk it. Um, I, I didn't want to know about a lot of stuff, and stuff I wanted to know about, I, I studied very well. Uh, I was very selective. Um, I hated authority. But I think my hate of authority, I'm sober 25 years now. I think looking back retrospectively, I have always had this thing from when I was a small child that if anybody tried to help me and correct me and teach me that they were putting me down and they were telling me that I was inadequate and uh, that I was stupid and what's wrong with you, you should know that. And uh, so it was very hard to teach Richard because uh, I resented the fact that uh, you knew more than I and, you, and I thought you expected me to know more than I did. Um, had a kind of an uneventual childhood. That twin brother of mine, when we were five years old, uh, we were on our way home from kindergarten, and a bolt of lightning came down and hit Michael on the head, and he kind of just vaporized in front of me. And uh, so I was, but that, that was so many years ago, they didn't have child shrinks. And so my parents just said that my twin went to heaven, and uh, I had a little guardian angel that looked just like me. Um, that was fine, and I could buy that. I had the child fantasy. But when I hit 12 years old, and puberty, and all, you know, and, and people started to expect me to be grown up and, and to do things that I felt inadequate uh, and unable to cope with, um, I resented the hell out of it because Michael got to go to heaven, and I'm down here uh, on earth uh, getting pimples and, and having trouble in school and, and getting chastised for masturbating and all that stuff, you know? And um, 
I really felt uh, that I wished I was Michael. I wished I had died and been the one that went to heaven because life somehow I knew wasn't going to be uh, all that well for me. My mother said I was uh, a depression baby because I was born in 1930. And uh, little did she know I was a true depression baby. I was depressed when I was born. You know, I really was. I, I think I knew I made my first mistake when I breathed in and out because I was, I was starting a chain of events that I wasn't going to be able to control. At 12 years old, I was probably the... I told my father something that I had just discovered about me. And um, it was probably the last time that I was innocently honest. And I said, Daddy, you know, the nuns at school today said that um, we're supposed to love everybody. And I said, God blessed me with the ability to do that. I said, I don't feel any different if I hug a boy than if I hug a girl. If I like them, they feel the same because I love what's inside and it doesn't matter what's the outside. And my father just heard, oh my God, my son's a queer. Um, <laughs> but that was, that was the last time I ever truly said what was going on with me without first taking an evaluation of what I was going to, what it was going to cost me, to be honest. Honesty was expensive. Honesty could make your father leave you emotionally. Honesty could get you in trouble with other kids. Honesty could make you um, alienated. So I started weighing my honesty out, and I would only trust people. And I fractured my life. You know, some people I could trust with some things, and other people I could trust with others. But I never really could trust anybody with who I was. And I was changing who I was in order to uh, be accepted anyway. When I was 16, my older brother and I, um, my dad was sitting around and he said, what are you going to do today? And my brother said, we're going to go down and try out for the basketball team. And my father said, you too, Richard? And I said, uh-huh, I'm taller than he is. So we went down and tried out for the basketball team and came home and my dad said, well, and my brother said, I didn't make it. And I said, I did. He said, you did? I said, uh-huh, I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> I kind of put the rub on dad quite a bit, I think. I started drinking when I was 15. Um, first time I ever got drunk, uh, it was drinking um, vodka in uh, orange drink from the Dairy Queen most appropriate and um, <laughs> I was driving out the highway and I thought oh, I'm getting sleepy I didn't know I was passing out and so I puked a little and pulled over and um, a cop came up behind me and the lights were blinking and he woke me up and he said okay son what have you been drinking I said I haven't been drinking I said I just fell asleep he said you have so I can smell it I said no you can't vodka doesn't smell yeah. <laughs> First time, first time out, I, why I didn't get the idea that I am rendered instantly stupid <laughs> when I drink, I don't know, but I liked it, you know, I liked it, I, I enjoyed that drink. Um, I drank my way through college, um, then uh, my father 
I was still drunk from my graduation party from college when my father informed me that I had been drafted in the army. And he was on my draft board. And, uh, <clears throat> and maybe, maybe the men in this program taught you how to be a man. The army sure as shit tried to teach me, but uh, it didn't work too good. Uh, terrible years spent in the military. Couldn't wait to get out. I just hated it, Jesus. And uh, so I got out and I went to Texas to a coming out party, a debutante one. And uh, not mine. And uh, I met this beautiful woman there and I came home and I said, Daddy, Daddy, I have fallen in love with a beautiful woman and I'm going to get married. And he said, Oh. And I said, Yeah, Principessa Raffaella Genasi. She's an Italian princess who was flown into Texas to this coming out party. And he said, well, well, that's different. And I said, well, what do you mean that's different? He said, well, it's the first time a princess married a queen. <laughs> so uh, I, he was rather glad to see me leave. Um, I moved to Italy where I lived for 14 years. The marriage didn't last that long. Um, I think it was four years or so. And um, I have a 50-year-old daughter that's a duchess over there. Um, the, I came back to the States, and uh, my drinking really was kind of controlled drinking. You know, uh, there's one thing I heard or read somewhere in AA, or, or I don't know where it came from, but alcohol taught me how to fly, and then it took away the sky. And that's what happened to me. So for so many years, I flew. I flew. I, a kid from Prescott, Arizona, was married an Italian princess and then wondered if he married beneath his station. I mean, <laughs> what is that? You know, and I, I lived. I mean, booze allowed me to do a lot of stuff. I always have great compassion for people who are blackout drinkers from the very first. Uh, I did a lot of stuff that was fun. And I paid the price for it. But I was willing to pay the price because the fun was worth it. You know, I don't know about the rest of you, but uh, booze did free me up from a lot of inhibition. And, uh, and I sailed and I flew. But then it, it uh, gradually took it away from me. After the divorce from the, the annulment from the princess, I came back to the States, and it was uh, the first time I was ever committed. Um, I got put in a Camelback Sanitarium and uh, for uh, anxiety attacks and um, crisi de nervi. The Italians called them a crisis of the nerves. It was a, a, a breakdown, an alcoholic breakdown, actually. And they kept me there for a while, and I loved it. If, if uh, I understand people who get institutionalized, because. Um, I didn't want to have to deal with life. I wanted people to take care of me. I didn't feel competent to take care of me. And all these people had all these expectations that I was going to, I mean, I'll never forget the shock that when my dad said I had to pay my own rent. I mean, what's that? <coughs> Excuse me, I was at the country club drinking one day, or going to drink one day, and the bartender said, I can't serve you because you're 21 and you're not a member. And I said, I have always signed my father's tabs. And he said, well, you can't do that anymore because you're 21. 
So I called my dad up on the phone. I said, hey, dad, I'm down at the country club. Just ordered a martini, and, and he won't serve me. And he said, well, no, because you're 21 now. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, you have to join the country club. I said, well, how much is that? And he said, 15, 20,000. I said, I don't have that kind of money. And he said, I guess you don't drink at the country club. I mean, this was serious shit. I mean, I, I mean, I was expected to buy my own booze and, and insurance on cars and all that stuff. My God, you know, what a shock. So, and then the princess's alimony only lasted five years. So I was getting kind of desperate. And, I, and I, so I enjoyed being in the institution. I just thought that was, I mean, good meals, had to put up with a few crazy people. Um, and uh, then they said, you have to go. And I said, I don't want to go. I'm not ready to go. You don't understand. I can't do it out there. I prefer to be in here. And they said, well, this is very expensive and your parents can't afford to keep you here. And I said, well, can I work in the craft shop? Can I teach people how to make ceramic ashtrays? And I said, no, I have to go. And I knew when I was maybe 25 at the time that I could not cope with life. I absolutely didn't know how to do it. I was scared to death to walk through those doors out there where people had all these expectations that I knew what I was doing and that I could take care of myself because I didn't think I could. So I moved back to Italy. Um, I'm a painter and artist. It's funny, when in Italy if I say I'm a painter, they say what medium or whatever. If I say I'm a painter, in, in, uh, especially in Las Vegas, they say track homes or custom. <laughs> but um, so I moved back to Italy and, and painted very well. Um, I got more money than the than I needed. Um, I was kind of well known as a, as an artist and was hanging with the glossy people. Um, it was the perfect life for me. I had no um, no responsibilities, no boss. I did have a a business manager who arranged shows, but if I was tired, then I would sleep, and if I was uh, thirsty, I drank, and I could sleep as long as I wanted, and, and, uh, and it ended up I drank a lot because I had no rules or regulations on me from the time I was in my mid-twenties, um, which was a disaster for an alcoholic. Um, I stayed drunk a lot. And then the suicide attempts began. Well, actually, they had begun earlier. Um, I'm very suicidal, was, and I felt like it this morning, but I'm putting it down. Um, my first suicide attempt was uh, at home, aimed at that family that was so perfect, so beige, so normal, and I just hated them. You know, they, I came home at 6.30 drunk, dressed in my army fatigues, and um, they all gave me that look that families can give the errant son, you know, that disdain, that disgust, that kind of, ugh, it's home. And they were at the breakfast table, and I hated them for eating breakfast. And so I said, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And I went outside, and I had a little MGTF convertible, cute little car, and I decided to drown myself. And, and uh, so I got in the car and drove through the fence and into the swimming pool, and... Uh, it was the shallow end, <laughs> and, and cars go real slow underwater, 
and I just inched along but then I got to the part where it goes down for the diving and it got deeper and I must have gone at least a mile an hour down that slope but what I and the family came out they heard all the noise and they're kind of standing around the pool watching this and I didn't know if you kept holding on to the wheel your ass floated and, and so I'm on the, holding on the wheel my body's going up feet are sticking out of the water my father's saying let go of the wheel let go of the wheel so I'm not good at suicide I have many many attempts the only thing I never tried was a gun because they're fatal um, in, in um, I had a very melodramatic and most of them were pretty melodramatic and I, I never ever tried to kill myself unless I was loaded and usually it was Christmas season or holiday seasons when I felt the worst uh, there's nothing worse than being a fallen away Roman Catholic living in Italy where every other goddamn person on the street is either a, a nun or a priest you know and the incense is coming out of the church and, and, and I, I'm missing being an altar boy and drinking the altar wine and um, so it was really painful and and being separated from my family and so I was suicidal quite a bit and um, when I was married to the princess I only tried it once and that was on uh, 200 seconds in our castle in Sicily and um, I didn't know when you took a whole lot of pills at least with me that before I went completely comatose I had to go to the bathroom and I didn't want to be found in my bed and puddle of piss and so because how you how they find your body is really important and and you have to have the right look on your face and everything and and so I didn't want to be going mm. so I uh, I got up and staggered into the the grand entry hall of the the castle and fell into a suit of armor um, which pinned me to the floor in this terrible racket and those servants and everybody came running and here's Richard laying under a suit of armor in a puddle of piss and, and uh, <laughs> so uh, I don't know why the princess thought there was something wrong uh, but uh, that was the only time with her that I, I had the tendency to, to leave of course I was sleeping with a gun under my pillow for drama um, and then um, back in Florence uh, I had a lover at the time in fact uh, when I when I did a sexual inventory it was really strange and I showed it to someone and they said well what is that and I said it's very easy to understand it him him her him her him him her him and him 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 that was the relationship and uh, her and and uh, that's kind of how I lived my life it was uh, if I got treated bad on one side I went to the other you know I, if I got tired of lighting cigarettes I'd have my cigarettes lit if I got <laughs> It was very, very confusing to get into. If you got into a menage a trois, you were going like this with both cigarettes. As you did. People flipping a coin, who's with Richard tonight kind of thing. Um, that was later on in my drinking when I was having troubles. Um, the, um, I went to Paris once and, and got depressed because I confessed to my lover I had cheated on him and he said he hadn't and I knew he hadn't I got pissed and I said I'll show you and I'll kill myself and I went back to my hotel 
and it was called the Pretty Hotel, one that uh, Americans don't go to. And I went down to the step, uh, down the steps to the front desk, and picked up my key, and went up to my room, and uh, was going to throw myself out the window. And um, so I was in my skivvies, and I opened the French doors out to the balcony. And when I opened the French door, it banged into the marble top dresser, and it broke the glass in the door. And I thought, oh my God, I can't go out the, can't jump out the window with broken glass on the floor. So I started picking up with the shards of glass, and I cut my hand, and then I fell into the wallpaper, and I got a big spot of blood on the wallpaper. And I thought, oh my God, I can't go out the window with dirty wallpaper. So I'm, it's about four or five in the morning in a blackout, and. And so I went in the bathroom and got a washcloth and started wiping the blood off the wallpaper and it was all these little bouquets of roses all over, terrible old wallpaper. And all the roses came off with the blood. So here was busy, busy wallpaper in this big blank spot. And I thought, oh God, now they're going to know I really messed up the room. So I was up really, really late cleaning off every other bun a bunch of roses. And I spaced out that pattern. I thought it looked better. It was my first interior design job. And, uh, but, but then I was ready to go. And, and any time I had ever seen or, or dreamed of jumping out of windows, you always get to do a terrific primal scream, you know. Splat. And I, so I got back and I jumped and I ran out and I, ah, because I forgot I had gone down to the desk to pick up my key. And I fell about four feet, and I was out on the sidewalk in Paris, and my skivvies going, oh, shit, my ankles, oh, my God. Chipped, chipped a tooth. It was... So windows were not to be my way to go. Um, I went back to Florence, defeated again, and uh, I was kicked out of Italy uh, because of my suicide attempts. They said the paperwork was overwhelming. <laughs> because the one time when, um, I had sliced my wrists and gotten into a bathtub of hot water so I wouldn't coagulate. I'd tried it before and I coagulated, but I found if you get in a bathtub of hot water, then you don't, you keep flowing. And um, a friend of mine, well, my ex-lover, came by and uh, found me naked in the bathtub, dyed red. And he carried me uh, over his shoulder to the nearest emergency room. And uh, I was declared dead for seven minutes in that hospital room. And um, I had one of those afterlife experiences that people talk about that I always never believed. But uh, I was in this tunnel and this, the most beautiful light I ever saw in my life. I've never felt the calm and the peace and the serenity that I felt at that time. Uh, it was kind of like, oh good, it's over. I'm at peace. It's done. And I was going up towards this brilliant light that was kind of a lilac-y periwinkle. And uh, everyone says, only a gay person would say periwinkle. <laughs> but that's the color it was. And. Uh, and all of a sudden, this little figure came out and, and blocked my way and put his hand up, and, and I couldn't go any further and stopped me, and it was Michael, and he was still five years old. So I came back. And my own theory on suicide is that God loves those deeply 
who he allows to come to him should they find themselves in such pain that they try to leave. And many of us have lost people uh, to suicide. But I do believe that those are people that God finally looks down and says, you have suffered enough, come to me, my child, and he takes them. I don't think anybody dies unless God wants them to, or lets them. And so uh, he just wasn't finished with me. He knew I had some more to do. However, I had to come back to the States um, because I was kicked out of Italy. I uh, ended up in New York. I had one more suicide attempt ahead of me, and that was my oven trip. Um, and uh, I got down on the floor. I put the towel under the window. That shut the door. Put the towel under the door so the gas wouldn't leak out. I'm smart. And a damp towel too to catch everything. And I turned on the range and turned on the oven and got down inside and tried to have the right this beatific like sweet oh look he's gone to Jesus look on his face and my knees were killing me and I I'm going to die with this grimace and they're going to think I didn't want to die so I got up and I got a blanket out of the bedroom and put a blanket down and padded it so my knees wouldn't hurt so I'd look right when they found the body and I came to the next morning I spent the whole friggin' night in the refrigerator, I mean in the, the oven. And I hit my head coming out of it and I thought, oh Jesus, I'm still breathing. And I don't have anything planned for today. Anyway. And here I am in New York, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I put on my dark glasses and got on the subway, which is what I always did when I didn't know what to do in New York. And there was this man sitting across from me on the subway, a black man, and he had a corkscrew and he had stuck it in a walnut and he's saying take that you white son of a bitch take that you white MF and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking if his insanity meets my insanity and our eyes connect it's going to go out of that nut and into this nut and I got really really upset about the whole thing and here I was just 40 minutes out of the oven and <laughs> But the very thought that somebody else could possibly entertain the thought of, of doing me in was really irritating. So I decided uh, I had better leave New York. Uh, gas, gas was not my way. I came to uh, Los Angeles in 1970 and found AA. Um, what time is it? Oh, I didn't do bad. I'm into, almost into sobriety already. Um, <laughs> But you always worry about, you know, because sometimes you drag out all that sad shit and, and you don't get into the good stuff. Um, I came to in, uh, well, it was a little bit of sad yet. In Los Angeles, uh, I had a four-day blackout, and I came to at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Um, I had gone through 390000 bucks in the last nine months of my drinking. Uh, I had, I think, 1200 left. Um, I was naked under a floor-length fur coat uh, and covered in blood. And so I thought, oh no, where have I been? And Because uh, it had been four days, so I looked in the bathroom and uh, it wasn't my blood. And that was, what, 30, 31 years ago, and to this day I don't know whose blood was all over me. Um, I'd been hanging with some porno people, some porno producers, because they had a lot of money. And um, 
I like decadent people with money. And uh, so I may have been in a snuff film, I don't know, but it wasn't me. And um, so I called the front desk, and they said, oh, you speak English? And I said, of course I do. And they said, well, we had to get an Italian translator for you. And I said, oh, Christ, I was, I was him again. You know, and um, So I said, I need a number for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called central office in, in L.A., and some woman answered the phone and said, Hello, Central Office, Los Angeles. My name is Barbara. I'm an alcoholic. How can I help you? I said, listen, lady, I don't give a shit if you're an alcoholic. I don't care what your problem is. I'm calling here because maybe there's an outside chance that there's some possibility that maybe somehow, by some weird coincidence of fate, that by some terrible twist of life, that I maybe possibly just might be an alcoholic. And she said, you sure should sound like one. <laughs> Instant hate. And, and then she said to me, are you sober? I said, how in the hell do I know? I just came out of a four-day blackout. I could be ripped to the tits. I don't know. Yeah. She said, well, do you think you can be sober? We'll come by and pick you up and take you to your first meeting tonight. And I said, sure, I think I can be sober by tonight. So I hung up, and then, then the thought hit me, oh my God, what do you wear to an AA meeting? And I thought, I don't have any clothes old enough, um, so maybe I better dress up and let them see what's coming. So, and everyone loves this, that have heard me before, so I had a Bill Blast brown velvet cocktail suit. It was hot. It was the best piece of clothing I ever owned in my life. And I thought, I'm going to show up in my Bill Blast brown velvet cocktail suit and a silk shirt and really wow them. Show them that class had arrived in AA. And um, so I put that on. And then I thought, oh, God, I should in the back entrance. I bet they show up in some old car. And they did. Some horrible old car. And they dumped me in it and took me out to a meeting. And um, the most cruel thing about that first meeting was in the entry hall, they had fluorescent lights. And uh, I only had seen me under candlelight and peach bulbs for a long time. You know, I, I couldn't stand. I mean, and the, the backlight from the bar were where we all looked good. I mean, that was terrific. And, and here they had fluorescent lights, and I'm looking at them. Jeez, look at all these little veins in my nose. Just because I decide to stop drinking, I'm breaking out. You know? <laughs> And, and then I looked at my Bill Blast Brown Velvet cocktail suit, and there was some dried barf on the collar, and I thought, oh, Jesus, you know. And then I, when I put the pants on, I thought, geez, the velvet's kind of stiff in that. Gosh. I guess a few mistakes here and there. But this was Richard looking good at his first meeting, you know, showing them who had arrived, and they knew who had arrived, believe me. The first lady to, to speak came up and uh, she said, I'm the speaker tonight, my name is, I can't remember what her name was, but she was cool, she was really good looking and she had on a black dress and pearls and I thought, we probably drank in the same places, the, the palace, you know, Oak Room at the St. Francis. And uh, so she welcomed me and said she'd talk to me after the meeting and she got up on the stage like I'm doing and she shared her story. And the first words out of her mouth was, 
Well, now that I've lost my jailhouse strut from all the time I did from pimping and horn and selling drugs, and I'm thinking, holy shit. We probably did drink in the same bars. But why is she telling all these people? Because she wants to come up and talk to me after the meeting, and I don't know if I want to be seen associating with that kind of lady. And um, so, and she did. She came up and... and by that time I was crying because I knew I knew I had come to the cocktail party I'd been looking for my whole life I knew I belonged here I knew I was absolutely an alcoholic I knew that you were the people who I'd been searching for my whole life I knew that you were the people who were going to understand me and I dissolved I just I had I guess a spiritual awakening I just crumbled inside because I was so glad to be home. And that was my first meeting. Bawled all the way through the Lord's Prayer. I could hardly remember all the words. And if there's any newcomers in the room, I think one of the greatest gifts that, I, that God gave me when I came into this program was a sense of curiosity and a knowledge that I didn't know who I was anymore. First, I had to be aware that I didn't know what my values were anymore. I had lied, twisted, I had done so many um, justifications and rationalizations in order to condone my behavior that I no longer knew who I was or what I really felt or what was going on. And I found that my curiosity was awakened and I thought, these people are going to tell me who I am. So I'm going to listen and I'm going to find out. And sure enough, you have. And I'm still growing and I'm still learning who I am. For the first years, my I looked like one of those dolls in the back of a Mexican Chevy. My head was going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. unbelievable. And and uh, when I was a drunk, I traveled a lot because life was boring and I had so much money and, and uh, so much time. And so I went all over the world. And, and I was in uh, uh, a meeting in Downey. And this black man got up and, and I was talking and he said I moved from Downey to Compton and then I moved from Compton over to Pasadena and my head's going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought, isn't that amazing? You people even had a name for it. It was called Geographics. I thought, and I'm the same. I am I am him and he is me. Just because mine was was where you know, where were you in nineteen seventy? Don't ask me that. Where were you after Greece, or where were you after Turkey, or where were you when? When were you in India? And I, I was how I knew my time frame. I had no, no years in my life. It was just muddle. But uh, I identified. I identified with geographics. I identified with the manipulation. I identified with the guilt trips. I, all the way through in my core, you people were hitting me and hitting me, and telling me this is who you are. This is who you are. And I said, tell me more, tell me more, I want to know. I'm finding out. Uh, 25 years of sobriety. Um, good, bad, up, down. I found good, bad are not words I like to use because good usually means things are going my way, bad means they're going God's way. <laughs> Occasionally we agree in that serenity. Um, I have my father, God bless him, we ended up with a great relationship before he died. But uh, he told me a little thing once, and I really loved it. 
He said a pitcher pitched a baseball, and there were three umpires, and one umpire said that ball was a strike because I call it by the optic law, and the other one said that ball was the ball because I call it by the physical presence of the ball, and the third umpire said it's neither a strike nor a ball until I call it. And you know, that's the way life is. Things aren't good or bad until I put a label on it. And the truth of the matter is, I haven't had a bad day in 25 years. I've had days with bad moments. I've had 23 hours of, of tough time. But if I talk to another alcoholic, if I call, talk to my sponsor, if I go to meeting, I haven't had a bad day. And that's important for me to know, because I like to lump things, you know? And, and how dare I? God has given me all these days and how dare I tell him I had a bad one? You know, if I did, it's my attitude or it's my perception. It's not what God gave me. It's how I choose to look at it. And that's very, very important to me. I uh, got married in sobriety, divorced in sobriety. Still love that wife, ex-wife. have a 22-year-old daughter from that relationship. She still uses, still love my daughter. Um, part of the experience of learning to cope and deal with life on life's terms. But I've learned that. I can. I can do it. From the kid who felt completely inadequate, I know today, standing before you, that I can handle anything that comes my way without taking a drink or a drug, and that I am capable, and that God has blessed me with the grace and the strength that I need to deal with anything when it's time to deal with it. I may not have that, the strength of the grace until the time comes, and then God says, I think I need to give you a booster, and he gives it to me. Um, this is a little... On uh, May 1st, well, April 26th, beginning of May, I found out uh, that I'm HIV positive. Not an easy thing for an old man. Um, and the doctor told me, and I sat on the table, and I said, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And the doctor started crying. And I said, well, why are you doing that? And he said, sorry. No one's ever said that before. And I said, well, no one's ever told me that before either. <laughs> so um, God has given me the strength. And he will give me the strength as, as the need be. Not when I want it, when God knows I need it. And that's the way life has been for me. You know, the, many of the things that have happened in my life, should I have anticipated I would have said no I can't I don't I can't deal with that the divorce was really rough uh, when when she moved out of town with my baby when the baby was two years old that was tough it took me a year to get over the pain of that and you people put up with me for a whole year crying in meetings saying I can't take it but God was there with me and he presented himself through you people and finally he presented himself through you people to me in the way I needed to hear it. 
someone said, Richard, we're so goddamn tired of listening to you piss and moan and cry about that kid. Why don't you come into the uh, recovery instead of living in the problem? You know, and I needed to hear that. I love, I mean, God placed Al-Anons on earth to hear me. You know, and, and I need people to sympathize. The women are terrific in AA. You tell them a sad story. Oh, well, mm-hmm. the men are. So what are you doing about it? You know. <laughs> I've learned what I'm doing about it is what it's all about. It is not about what has happened to me. It is not about what is going on with me. It's about how I deal with it, how I choose to look at it. How I choose, what attitude I choose to have about it. What kind of faith I intend to, to use in order to go through whatever I have to go through. Um, it is the strength that, that uh, is beneath the, my wings. is AA, my higher power, and the love and the friendship of all you people in this room. Uh, it has meant so much to me. I had my 25th birthday here in July. And... Um, 250 people or so came to Ted's house, my sponsor. My my other, my best sponsor isn't here. Hi, Ted. <laughs> but uh, what a party and what love and what care. And I had been in Phoenix. I, I moved back to Vegas. I had been in Phoenix taking care of my mom who has dementia and uh, Alzheimer's. And um, I was down there for two and a half years almost. And it finally got beyond me. Um, she, she started slipping into areas where, because of she is my mother and I am her son, I felt the, the impossibility of dealing with the dignity that I wished my mother to remain with, that I could not uh, any longer take care of her. Some female stuff that maybe a daughter could take care of, but a... It just didn't seem right for a son to get involved in some of that stuff. So, um, and then, of course, I was diagnosed. So, um, it was kind of God was saying, you know, I'll take care of your mother, you go take care of you. And then, so I came back to Vegas. And God is taking care of my mother. Uh, my brothers, uh, we didn't know what to do. Um, nursing home, she's lived in the same house 47 years. Uh, the very thought of kicking mom out of her house and putting her in a nursing home was uh, difficult. I didn't think she'd last long. Uh, she loved that home so much. What time is it? Eight till? Good. Um, so, uh, but we, we didn't have any other alternative. We got a, a really super place, the best place in Phoenix for her to be. And um, four days before we had to put her in there, my sister-in-law was talking to a Polynesian gardener of hers who happened to have a niece who had just come over from New Zealand from a hospital who had been trained to deal with elderly people with Alzheimer's. I'm so grateful. The culture, the culture of the Polynesians is such that uh, they love and adore and respect age and hika is now my mother's friend and companion and her aunties and, and her cousins and my, my mother's never been happier. She's looking Polynesian even. You know. <laughs> She's 
tan as a betel nut, you know. <laughs> and they just sit out there and she blobbers away and he can laughs and and my mom is divinely happy and, and I say and truly divinely, because it is all, her happiness comes from the divine, I think. That God just managed to arrange that just four days before. Um, and everything is working beautifully. Um, I'm so glad I'm back in Vegas. I'm so glad, I'm, and I'll close with um, probably the little story about my dad. As you could tell from earlier comments from him, we did not have that good a relationship. I, I was owned or disowned all the time, depending on what I was sleeping with. Um, he finally got down to shorthand, and he'd call me up in Italy, and he'd say, well, is it an A or an O? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you're sleeping with Maria or Mario. <laughs> so um, finally we made our peace, and because I had regained enough self-worth and self-dignity that I could look my father straight in the eye and say, this is who you have as a son. I may never be the son that you always wanted me to be but I'm the son who God wanted me to be, and you are my father, so let's see if we can't work this thing out. And I, I got into my father's past, and I didn't know where he came from. I knew who my grandfather was, but I didn't know the relationship between my father and my grandfather. And he was worse than my father, my grandfather, strict. And my father had made great distances to try to compensate. But he was how he was raised, and I didn't know that. So I ended up with compassion. He was afraid of his father. I wasn't afraid. I was ashamed, but I wasn't afraid of Daddy. But he was afraid of his father. So I ended up with compassion for Dad and appreciating and gratitude for the stretch that he had made to come as far as he did. And when he was dying, I was in Phoenix, and he, um, I said, I think I'll go in and say bon voyage. And so I went in. And I said, Daddy, you know, most of your life you've walked uh, hand in hand with God, and I think today you're going to walk arm in arm with him, so bon voyage. And there was one thing that we never quite had settled, and that was with my brothers, he would, when we came home for holidays, he would hug Bill and he would hug Tom and he would shake my hand. It was kind of like he was going to catch me or something. And um, so he said, bend down. And... Uh, I bent down, he was weak, and I, I couldn't hear him too good. And he said, no, no, not like that. And so I bent down, and Papa kissed me on the mouth and said, I love you unconditionally. Um, he died 45 minutes later. The, um, at the funeral mass, Daddy was big in the church, and the bishop said the mass, and TV cameras were there. Daddy was big in the community. And I saw on television that night the camera panning the family like it does. And my brother's crying, my other brother's crying, and my mom's looking at me. And I had that glow. I had the glow of love. I had the glow of gratitude. Not a tear. There was such gratitude that the completion of my father's life and my uh, son relationship with him had been so beautiful. I'm so grateful to this program. It has given me life. And it will teach me how not to have life. Thank you. <laughs>